Our next speaker is Claire Hampson, Dr Claire Hampson. As I mentioned before, she's a forensic pathologist trainee, which means that it is her job to know the difference between maggots. Uh, <laughs> in addition to this, uh, she's also collected accolades, including appearances at Melbourne International, International Comedy Festival, uh, first prize winner at the Melbourne Fringe Festival. Uh, she can make anything out of craft glue. Um, and has developed a new hobby, photographing gout crystals under the microscope. <laughs> They're very pretty. Uh, I'd like to introduce Claire. Well, true, unfortunately. All right, tonight I am going to tell you a story about love. Yeah, I know. This story is about dedication and this story is about two lives lived with passion. This story is about opening both your mind and your legs to the advancement of science. It was the summer of 1910. An 18-year-old Greek woman named Andromache Mavriani, from now on we'll call her Mary, <laughs> uh, was travelling with her family on a ferry to the Greek islands when she became reacquainted with a young Greek man. We'll call him George. <laughs> Not because a racist, actually his name. <laughs> and George was a local boy and he was on his way home. So he was 26, he'd trained as a doctor, but he dreamt of being a philosopher. And in fact, on this ferry trip, he was on his way home from um, being off at the university in Munich, getting a PhD in zoology. So they didn't have mobile phones back then, but I'm pretty sure that Mary would have texted something like this back to her friends in Athens. Hey, Wula, oh my God, I'm with this guy, I'm like in love now, he's like a doctor. And Wula would have written back, like a PhD or like a GP. And we've been like, Mary would have been like, like both? Yeah, hot, I know. Mary and George married that spring and headed abroad. And when they finally came back to Greece, George was unfortunately conscripted away for two long years to the Balkan Wars. Mary, Mary supported her husband anxiously from afar, waiting for him to come home. But when George finally did come back home, he'd spoken to one too many American volunteers and had dreams now of an unlimited career in research in America. As Mary packed up her life and farewelled her family, for this man and his land of opportunity, she thought this surely was love. This is what love is about. She didn't even come close. New York, 1913. They arrived first class and uh, America's proudest new citizens stepped out with $250 in their pocket, ready for their new life. But unfortunately, the reality of the new life was working in a department store for both of them. George was selling rugs and Mary was sewing buttons. But still, they were together and they were strong. George continued, persevered to apply for scientific jobs and finally uh, landed a technical job. And uh, his talent was swiftly recognised and he was soon promoted to a low-level research position in the Department of Anatomy at Cornell University. Mary became an unpaid assistant to her husband. Aww. <laughs> husband and wife combo. <laughs> side by side, day by day. Now this, this has got to be love. 
in what is now a terrible cliche, they started testing on guinea pigs. So they were looking at sexual differentiation in the guinea pigs and they needed to harvest ova at a specific point in the cycle for what they were doing. And what they found was that the uh, literature at the time, you know, to work out at what time the guinea pig was in its cycle was inaccurate at best. Um, and a quote from a paper that George authored in 1917, strangely enough, our knowledge of the sexual rhythm in the guinea pig is much confused. <laughs> And it has become more and more desirable to know their estrus periods. <laughs> so true then, and you know, still true now, really, I feel. So in order to do this, George, George had a breakthrough. He woke up in the middle of the night, and he was so inspired with the thought that he wrote it down. And the thought was this. The females of all higher-order animals have a periodic vaginal menstrual discharge. So rodents should also have one, but probably one too scanty to be evidenced externally. Yeah. So that morning, George headed off to the uh, supply store and bought himself a paediatric nasal speculum, um, which is essentially two sort of blades that form a sort of curve and you, you know, put it in the nose, squeeze the handle and it opens it up. Uh, some of you can probably see where this is going. <laughs> Has anybody got there yet? Yep. So, um, you know, we, we talked about love. Um, and I think, I think the moment when Mary came back from lunch to find her husband probing the vagina of a guinea pig with an instrument that's normally used to pull dried apricots out of kids' noses, and she stayed and helped... Yeah, all right, we're getting towards love. We're really getting there. George, Papa Nicolau, you strange pistachioed man, get off that microscope and come and eat your saganaki. But Mary, Mary, the, the cells are different throughout the cycle. It's actually the cells. It's not just blood. It's not just mucus. Oh, that's pretty good, George. Well done. <laughs> Mary, I was thinking, if this is happening in guinea pigs, <laughs> No, Mary! Mary, what do you say? George, I really, I'm not really sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, we talked about love and I... Mary. <laughs> I'll do it if you never make that face again. So George started his uh, new study, which I like to call N equals Mary. <laughs> now, <laughs> and it, it happened. Um, this is all true. This is all true. Um, now, the rumour is flying around that he actually perhaps meet her every day for 20 years. <laughs> but that's, that's an exaggeration. What I've actually... It's not really substantiated in what I've read. Uh, what we do know is that she was his patient over the period of 20 years. And we also know that at least one cycle, she got a pap smear every single day. Probably more. Dear God. So... <laughs> Love, this is, yeah, it's definitely love. I think no one can deny um, this woman's, it was definitely showing love. 
I mean, it's just, it's unfathomable to most of us. It's like, I mean, when did they do it? <laughs> was it like a morning ritual? <laughs> morning, darling, assume the position. You know, was it, was it sort of a nighttime thing to send each other off to bed? I don't know. I mean, I, can't, I actually couldn't help feeling that maybe once he would have done it sort of post-coital just to check his own handiwork out. <laughs> That's just my own sick mind. <laughs> But I don't, uh, they, you know, they've never really spoken about how it affected their intimate life, but um, they never had any kids. <laughs> but back to the story. <laughs> now we're in the 1920s, and this study was going along quite well, and George had spoken to a few people and now managed to expand the study from N equals Mary to N equals various women with endocrine and genitourinary diseases. So he went through a whole lot of smears, and he actually found some abnormal cells. And he said... The first observation of cancer cells in the smear of a uterine cervix was the most thrilling experience in my scientific career. <laughs> he compiled a report of his new non-invasive diagnostic method and took it to a conference. But the man was not pleased. He was met with equal amounts of scepticism and indifference from the medical community. His method was not seen to add anything of value to the current practice of taking a biopsy of the cervix and sending it to a certified pathologist, which he was not. Snap. <laughs> I'm not sure whether the massive snub was at all due to it, uh, him quoting at one stage, it's very easy to recognise cancer cells. Pathologists don't like things like that. <laughs> but um, this, this is a huge snub for the medical community. It's not something that you can really just brush off. Um, so even though George was pretty sure he was right about this whole cancer diagnosis thing, he kind of backed away for a bit because there was nothing he could do. It was a very low time for him and um, he said, if it were not for the help of my wife, I would have found it hard to continue my work. <laughs> Lucky Mary! No more patients! Back to N equals Mary for a little while. Um, and he worked back onto the hormonal study of the cells. So he looked at uh, the cells under estrogen, cells under testosterone, um, and he ended up hooking up with an endocrinologist who then sent him smears from infertility clinic to have a look at those. Um, and he was looking... This is a sort of 10 years after his first discovery of the cancer cells, and he saw... He saw them in an infertility clinic patient's smear and they took a biopsy which didn't show anything. Oh, that's weird. Just, they did it again and then they found cancer. And the significance of this is that this test was actually more sensitive in this, you know, one time. <laughs> than the biopsy. He was finding things that, you know, they couldn't see, early invasive lesions. And um, there was really something here. Due to good leadership in the department, he got teamed up with an obstetrician and gynaecologist called Herbert Trout. It's not a joke, it's his actual name. <laughs> good name. Um, and Trout and Papa Nicolau commenced a study of all the women admitted to the gynaecology department in the New York hospital with numbers in the thousands. And they found 193 cancers, and they diagnosed 98.7 of the lesions um, on, shown on biopsy. Um, there were two that they missed. And um, like any good scientist, they had really good reasons in their paper about why they were missed. It's fine. 
and they also found 13 instances of cancer when no other clinical procedure had sufficed to make that diagnosis. So in 1943, Papa Nicolau and Trout released their paper called Cancer of the Uterus, the Vaginal Smear in its Diagnosis. This is a pivotal paper and was the turning point in the medical profession's attitude and really started the ball rolling. So after this article came out, a number of really respected um, institutions started repeating the study, confirming observations and endorsing the method. And finally, they got an endorsement from the American Cancer Society and the Public Health Service. So it just really took off from this point. Um, they had a cytologic conference in 1948, by which time George was professor of the clinical anatomy department and had examined over 10,000 smears. At this time, he said, it has been stated that every woman over 30 or 40 years of age have periodic smear examinations at regular intervals. Mortality from the cancer of the uterus would be practically eliminated. This is a dream which cannot be realized at present. However, as time goes on, more women may learn to appreciate the value of such a test. He was dreaming. A decade later, the 1960s dawned, Professor George and Mrs Mary Papanicolau, still a volunteer at the hospital, <laughs> commuted together every day from Douglaston to New York City and they'd now been doing this for 43 years, people, 43 years. Mary was a proficient technologist and was supervising and training her own uh, cytological technicians. And George was still teaching, now 78 years old. Um, and the couple had only just moved to Miami to start the Papa Nicolau Cancer Research Institute when George died suddenly of a heart attack. Well, we don't know how Mary felt. We can probably guess. Her love, her lifelong companion, the man for whom she would undergo prolonged periods of daily pap smears for was gone. The tributes poured in from multiple journals and it's a shame that he never got to see the remarkable success of his technique. He never knew that his work had contributed to the reduction of cervical cancer mortality by over 70% in the US alone. And he really made it to the big time. He got featured on two stamps, both in his home in adopted countries and the 10,000 drachma banknote prior to the euro. And Mary, I mean, we don't really know that much about Mary's life after George. She did receive some recognition um, from the American, what was the cancer, some kind of academy, and it was a special award and they inscribed it to Mary Papanicolau, Companion to Greatness. Which I thought was a bit patronising myself. Um, <laughs> and I prefer George's, you know, George's quote, which should have been inscribed, which was, no one excels her in her devotion to her work. We have so much to thank this couple for. I thank them for their perseverance against significant barriers. I thank them for their ingenuity and unorthodox approach. About seven years ago, one of my friends, who's a cytologist, um, opened up a pap smear that a GP had just put way too much solvent on and kind of flicked a bit into her eye. And um, ever since then, <laughs> me and all of the other people in the lab have been calling her Pap-Eye. <laughs> so to the Papa Nicolaus, I thank you for that gag, because it just, I just love it. And on a related note, by putting the Papa Nicolau name on the test, they prevented it from being named after the other author of that 1943 paper. Because I don't know about you guys, but as uncomfortable as it may be, I'd rather have a pap test than a trout smear <laughs> any day of the week. <laughs>
as it happens, um, next Monday is actually George Papanikolaou's birthday and National Cytotechnology Day. So my challenge to you all here, now you know the story, to celebrate National Cytotechnology Day and all the women, everyone who's overdue for a smear has to go book one. And I want the rest of you to find a Greek immigrant working in a rug shop, hold him in your arms, kiss him on both sides of his face and tell him you believe in him. Because <laughs> you never know what he's going to do. Thank you.